This is a crowd podcast. Hello, I'm Geraint Thomas. And I'm Tom Fordyce. And you've just entered the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club. Brought to you by Zwift, the indoor cycling app where fun is fast. Welcome. Geraint, we're back. How's your week been? You've been away somewhere. Yeah, I've been in Tenerife on top of uh, Mount Tidy. Yeah, it was a great, great camp. Hard work as we sleep at about 2,100 metres altitude. And then train for six, seven hours a day. And then get a chef to cook for us and go to bed and do it all again. But I've got some news for you. I haven't made it to the top of the volcano for yet another camp. Again? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I always come in, because basically, for those that don't know, Mount Tidy is the volcano, basically, in Tenerife. Well, Tenerife is just a volcano. And um, people drive up from the coast. They go on holiday down in the, you know, the resorts on the beach, drive up hour and a half, go up this cable car, which takes them from, yeah, 2,100 to, I think it's just over 3,000 metres high at the top of the volcano. Um, big coach loads of people, not quite coach loads at the minute with the whole COVID situation. But yeah, it's a big tourist attraction. And I must have come here at least 13, 14 times for two week blocks. Um, so well over half a year I've spent up here of my life. And I still haven't managed to make it to the top yet. So <laughs> maybe next time. I'm definitely going to have to do it before I stop, before I retire. But yeah, the thing is, like, what? When you get to a rest day, though, you're just that tired. You just can't be bothered, you know. Well, it's two k drive, so a couple, <laughs> couple of minutes drive, and then just going on a cable car up to the top. But um, I'm going to have to do it at some point, aren't I? See, when you first told me about this, I always imagined the cable car was either a long way off or it was like a really onerous journey. Um, I went up to the, I went to the hotel to do a piece for your former teammate Chris Froome. And I didn't realise, A, that you could actually see the cable car from the hotel, that it was right there. And also, although you had told me about this, the fact there is absolutely nothing else to do at the hotel. Like, it's not flashy, is it? The rooms are pleasant but quite sparse. And then the restaurant is just a really ordinary hotel restaurant. And it's busy during the day when all these people come up on the bus and they go into the little cafe bit at the front. But it's not like there's loads of other things for you to do on your day off. Oh, there's absolutely nothing. <laughs> um, on a day off, basically, well, day off a rest day, we'll probably go out on the bikes at 11. We'll do an hour and a half. We'll stop for a coffee, get home for, for lunch for half one and then lie on our beds the rest of the day, really, because <laughs> we're that tired. But yeah, it's changed a lot, though. Like when I first started coming up, even the Wi-Fi was really bad. It wouldn't work. I brought my PlayStation with me, played on it for the first three or four days, and then you need a bit of energy to play that as well. You know, like when you get into <laughs> FIFA, you need to concentrate, don't you, really? And I just, ugh, that just sat there as well in the corner, and I was just basically a zombie for two weeks. So, but yeah, luckily the Wi-Fi works a lot better now. But that's it, really, yeah. It's not nothing to do. But that's what's good about the camp, you know. You basically ride your bike, you hit the regime hard, the diet, and then... um rest the rest of the time yeah it's such a strange setup if, if people have never been to this hotel it's such a weird setup isn't it because it is literally the only hotel for miles around and then it's just full of the world's best cyclists it's not massive 
And when you go around that little roundabout to the back where the bike storage room is, and you've got your mechanic, Gary Blem, there, and like half the world's best cyclists are all fighting for space in this giant bike shed, like all pulling their bikes off the wall. Yeah, it is strange, especially um, in the past sort of 12 months, because obviously there's no tourists. Um, so it's just basically bike riders in this hotel. So, you know, there's been us, Trek, Astana, uh, Bahrain, DSM. So a ton of bike riders. And uh, yeah, it is strange. But we're lucky now because there's one apartment in the whole hotel, which has a little kitchen, which we managed to get every time where our chef can cook from. So we don't have to see the other bike riders in the morning because, you know, Wout is in Bahrain. He's a good mate. But other than that, I don't want to go to breakfast and just see, you know, Nibbly and <laughs> some other guys, you know. It's nice to just sort of be separate and it doesn't seem as, I don't know, when you see other bike riders and stuff, it feels a lot more serious in some sort of way. It's nice to just stick to our our own little routine and our own little bubble, which is nice. Oh, Froomey as well. Froomey's up here with his oh. new new crew. But yeah, so it is a it is a weird vibe. But I do like it up up there as well because it's it feels clean, doesn't it? I don't know if you know when you come up here, you know, there's no obviously you're super high, the air's thin, but there's no real pollution or anything. Generally, it's blue skies because you're above the clouds, sun's shining. You can't complain really. Well, boys, France did not win the Six Nations. It was there for the taking, but let's face it, France will be back and the World Cup 2023 will be our time to shine. I agree, Benji. You're nearly back and the good news is we'll be with you all the way. We'll have the stories, the big name guests and the scandal behind the scenes in French rugby as we build towards an epic tournament in France and the World Cup 2023. There you go. That's adopted Frenchman Johnny BT. Full-on Frenchman, Benjamin Kayser. And you can catch hey, us hey. on the French Rugby Podcast every Wednesday on all your usual podcast platforms. Au revoir. Écoutez et téléchargez ce super podcast. Merci. The GTCC are delighted to be sponsored by our friends at Amp Human. They're dedicated to helping athletes at all levels achieve their potential, even amateurs like me. AMP's flagship product, PR Lotion, is the world's first and only lotion to deliver the natural electrolyte bicarb to the body. Now, gee, this all sounds quite fancy, but you've been using it for, what, a couple of years now? Does it help? Yeah, definitely. And it's not just any old ad this either, you know, to try and get a bit of cash in to help produce the pod. But I genuinely feel like it does help kind of lather it on wherever you want, whatever muscles are working. So, yeah, bang it all over my legs for any hard session or, uh, yeah, time trial. Well, there's studies as well that show a 50% reduction in muscle soreness when using PR Lotion. And you can benefit too with 25% off your next purchase using the code GTCC25. That's the letters GTCC and the number 25. Just visit amphuman.com forward slash GTCC and start training with your PR Lotion today. So, G, I've chosen this week's topic because it's something that a lot of riders have never experienced. They haven't really had one. Um, we're going to do coaches and coaching. Yeah, nice. I like it. Um, coaching. So I think my first coach would have been, I think I was fairly young, say 16 or so. And basically I um, 
as part of Mainly Flyers, a local cycling club, and I ended up just doing everything they were doing. Like every day of the week, I was doing something like all quite intense, like you know, racing stuff and this and that. And I remember my dad being like, "Just, just calm down a bit, back off, you know, just you know, have a night off, do something else, whatever." But I was dead keen, wanted to do everything, and then one random night, there was like a Welsh coach down there. Um, Darren Tudor his name was he was a junior coach at the time and my dad had a quick word with him he's like oh do you mind just like having a word with him getting him to sort of back off a bit and just a little bit of advice and anyway Darren was like ah oh, no worries I'll uh, I'll start you know coaching him properly give him a bit of a program this and that so uh, yeah Darren Tudor was my first coach and he sort of coached me until I moved up to Manchester then and joined the under 23 academy so yeah a good two three years was with him and um, yeah He's a character. Maybe we'll have to get him on the pod at some point. But yeah, <laughs> it's that strange thing in cycling, isn't it? Whereas if you're a football or a rugby coach or a cricket coach, whatever it may be, you're coaching a team. You're coaching individuals within that team, but they are all uh, they can only win together. Whereas the slightly weird thing you can have within cycling is you could be coaching two or three different riders in a team, and they may well be rivals at different points. Well, it's a funny one, really, because when you look at like. Track racing, for instance, when you have Olympic sprinters, they can have the same coach, like GB, for instance. The rules might change now. It's just one rider per nation, but it used to be two. So in the Olympic final, you could have two guys going up to the track with the same coach. And uh, yeah, it must be it must be a funny one for coaches. But, but yeah, cycling is just such a weird sport in that it's so individual that you need to be really disciplined and, and selfish and know yourself and know exactly what you want to do and have your own goals. But then that also has to fit, especially road cycling, fit into the whole team of it as well. So, yeah, and then coaches on, on cycling teams, on trade teams, and, you know, they could be coaching a sprinter along with, you know, someone that's trying to win the classic along with somebody that's trying to climb really well to help somebody win the tour. So it's um very individual from rider to rider for sure it's just a lot of work that is a lot of work there's some riders maybe this is something that used to happen more 10 15 20 years ago did some riders have their own personal coaches so this wouldn't be someone working within the team it's just someone they trust or someone they've worked with before a bit like you get this sometimes with uh batsmen at test level they'll have the national coach but they'll also have some sort of almost like a batting guru, someone they go back to who just goes, tell you what, get that forearm a little bit higher up or just get that head moving. And they go back to them in addition to having the coach at the team level. Yeah, I think these days it is different. Like Certainly in this team, everyone has to be coached by one of the coaches here. And then if you do have someone else that you really want, generally you have to be a really good rider to to bring your own coach. And um, they'll bring him into the team basically and and, and work with him. Yeah, there's no one these days that's sort of in a team, or I can only speak for Ineos Grenadiers, but yeah, there's no one here which would have their own coach outside of the team. But yeah, back in the day, I think it was just a free-for-all. You just go and, and do what you want, basically. And um, but yeah, I think trust is uh, a big thing when it comes to, to having a coach and uh, that dialogue between the two of you. i got one more question, G, before we get our guest on. When the time comes for you to uh, to step away from racing, could you ever be a coach? Oh, I think I'd, I could. I think I'd enjoy it, but not straight away. Like when I stop, I'm going fully off grid and just sort of enjoying everything that I don't get to enjoy now. But um, no, yeah, when it comes to coaching, it, it is something 
I'd quite like to work with like younger riders, maybe. Well, the guest we got on has has got plenty of experience of that, and I'm sure he's going to explain now. But um, yeah, there's something about sort of helping that development and more coaching a whole lifestyle rather than just um, how to go quick on a bike. So for this episode, G, I said you could pick any coach you wanted. Who have you gone for? So I've gone for a coach that's coached me, not just, uh, you know, with numbers and training, but more a bit of a life coach as well, really. Someone that's been in British cycling for, well, a, a very long time. Obviously worked with him in Sky as well. Uh, dabbled in the Middle East for a year. But uh, now he's back with Ineos Grenadiers. Welcome, Rod Ellingworth. I like dabbled in the Middle East. <laughs> yeah, well, we've all got to do a bit of that every now and again, haven't we? Yeah, exactly, yeah. So shall we start with what a coach actually does? Because this is one of the strange things about cycling. Like, everyone knows what a coach does in rugby. Everyone knows what a coach does in football. But you always seem to get different sorts of, of coaches in cycling. Yeah, I think, you know... Um, relatively you know coaching in cycling is is relatively a new thing I think I say new you know when you think about athletics it's been there for years and years with cycling you know certainly in you in the UK 20 years ago coaching wasn't particularly at the forefront uh, where I think now it really is, has changed you know so um, and I, I think you know, obviously there's there's the guys who are really into the numbers and it's all about that you know physical conditioning but then as Gowright said you know which is perhaps more my style is more about the lifestyle and certainly for people working with the development riders. Yeah, and just a bit of background, Rod was, um, I say, a life coach to me because he was basically head of the, the British Cycling Academy, which is the under-23 squad. So when I was a junior, I won the Junior Worlds in Los Angeles and then moved up to Manchester November that year. So Mark Cavendish was there, Ed Clancy. Yeah, and Rod, Rod was basically with us every day, like, it, it, it was your life pretty much wasn't it like he'd rock up at our outside the houses at nine o'clock making sure we were leaving on time track sessions obviously we had the odd sort of French or Italian lessons whatever they were but yeah like double sessions you know he'd and I'm sure Rod you'd, you'd make the days busy to make sure we were planning the night before making sure we had you know made our food whatever for lunch and you know we weren't just going to Asda and just getting a sandwich um other supermarkets available but uh you know it was there was a lot of just um how we look after ourselves you know hygiene wise it was the whole ship it was like university for pro cycling rather than a doctor yeah i think it's, it's about getting people into that routine isn't it and and i think you know a sport like cycling you've got to be highly dedicated you know and i think for, for me <clears throat> it wasn't about making it just hard work for these guys it was it was all for a reason and it was it was preparing them for in my mind it was preparing them for both worlds really one olympic arena but also the professional cyclist arena as well which is at the time it wasn't really in the remit for british cycling but i sort of just knew in the background that these guys were good enough uh, you know if they can perform the olympics and the, that sort of quality there's no reason why they can't go on to really good careers in the future so you it was did all try about to that, break really. us though as well didn't you physically well we we tried you to break them a little bit but <laughs> <laughs> but like i think okay, uh, might be a bit strong but they definitely you got rid of the people that didn't really want to do it didn't you 
Yeah, well, again, I think, like I say, it's about discipline, isn't it? You know, and uh, you know, if you need to get people out of bed, they're just not going to be made for this game. You know, they've got to get themselves out of bed. And I always say, some the best ones in the world are the ones you have to hold back. You know, you, you have to constantly say, just ease up a little bit. You know, you're going too hard, you're doing too much. They're the ones who most likely will make it, not the ones that you've got to get out of bed every day. But you know, I I, I really believe in discipline, and I, and I believe in uh, you know a team. You know, at the end of the day, this is a team sport. Okay, you know, like when go out on the tour, it's only one person who really gets the real glory from it. But there's a there's a massive team behind, and it's not just the riders. There's all the background staff as well, and I think the riders have to appreciate that and know, you know, sort of have a real understanding and a and a, a respect for everything that goes off around them. So, discipline is a for me, it's, it's quite a, a big part of a young man's game in, in this sport. You know, it's uh, you've got to have it. I think. You didn't mind dishing out the occasional um, taking off, did you, Rod? From the stories G's told me, it's quite tough love sometimes. Yeah, well, I, uh, that's what I believe it is about tough love. It's not, you know, at the end of the day, again, you, you know, I was there. Uh, it was my job to try and make these guys as good as they can be and pass them on, uh, you know, at the right standard and with the right knowledge and, you know, all the everything they need to move forward. And you certainly aren't going to do that by just making it easy for them. Uh, but again, it wasn't about making it hard for just making it hard to say. It's because this is a hard life. It's not an easy game for them. So we always had rules and we had, uh, you know, consequences to the rules. And this was very much a Steve Peters thing. We, we worked heavily with Steve Peters and I did a lot of work with Steve around, you know, how can I get the best out of young athletes? At the end of the day, you know, Gowan was, I think, 17 when you moved up to Manchester you know, uh, in that first year, 17 or 18, maybe just 18. Yeah, just turned 18, yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of guys. I think Swifty joined when he was 17. You know, the young guys, difficult time in life, um, in a way. You've got lots of opportunities for people now at that age. Uh, you know, and we brought them into Manchester. And I called it the halfway home because I knew for them to make big careers, they had to go abroad. They, they'd have to go and live and be on their own. And the whole idea was get them out of their homes in the UK, bring them to Manchester. I always lived within a couple of mile of them for five or six years. I did, you know, never was never too far away because I believe in face to face and really supporting the guys. Yeah. That was the hardest thing with Rod. Actually. I remember one year, none of us wanted to do the national track champs for some reason. It'd just been a long year and stuff. And we were all moaning about it. And Rod was like, right. Okay, boys, end of the day, do whatever you want. If you want to do them, you sign this form or whatever. Like you put it all back on us. Suddenly, like within an hour, all of us had signed up to do it. You know, I think it's just like, he definitely, probably the work with Steve Peters, but he just, he got inside our heads, did Rod. But uh, I also remember the the biggest telling off we ever got, Rod, or I got, was when, it was when Liverpool <laughs> won. You make me the- sound real bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it's all good. But, um, it was Liverpool won Champions League final. Was it 2005? It was on my birthday. Yeah. And uh, Rod didn't actually know that it was my birthday at, th- at the time, which is probably, I'm a bit upset about anyway, Rod. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I never knew when anybody's birthday was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Me, Matt Bramier and Tom White go out, go to watch the football in the pub, have a few pints, you know, we'll watch the game go on. Anyway, obviously goes to extra time penalties. So what we thought would be three pints ended up, being I don't know eight or nine probably it was a big night <laughs> and um you know the atmosphere was incredible you know you don't want to leave do you like anyway we leave there 
don't really remember what time it was. Go via Subway, end up buying all the cookies, all the muffins, and you know that little sort of thing they have yeah. by the till? It was like, oh, we'll just have them all. Bought them all. Go home. <laughs> I sh- I'm sharing a house with Ed Clancy and Mark Cavendish at the time. Wake them both up. You know, Bramier just trashes the house. There's like muffin and um, <laughs> cookies all on the floor. My cycling shoes in the freezer. There's like normal shoes hanging from the lights, like sofas turned upside down. And... Uh, it just happens to be that the British cycling um, photographers coming in the morning to do a story about the academy with Rod. So I was up at like 7.30, Hoover breaks as I'm hoovering up everything, go next door, <laughs> borrow their Hoover, like tidy the house up, like get it all done. Anyway, go out on this ride, eight o'clock, whatever. And then we get down to um, the meeting point where we meet Rod. And uh, Ed randomly sent me this picture, actually, that this photographer took on that day. And uh, yeah, what? I just remember it so vividly, like Rod just just quizzing us. Like, didn't say he knew the whole story, but he's like, "So, what did you get up to last night, then, boys?" And we we're just like, "Ah, oh, went went to watch the football. What time did you get in?" I don't know, ten probably. It was probably more like midnight <laughs> or something. But anyway, uh, we do the session and the rest. Yeah, and the rest. <laughs> we do the session, and um, as it happens, I actually kicked Cav's head in. Do you remember? I rode him off the wheel. We were doing leadouts and. So I, you know, I still turned up for training and gave Cav a hard time. Anyway, turns out Cav had dobbed us in to Rods. <laughs> Cav was Cav was a snitch. Oh yeah, he was a big snitch. Anyway, get called into the velodrome the next day. Rod, Shane, Dave B. Dave B's got this pencil that he's turning around his hand. I thought he was just going to snap it at one point. Like Shane's like, "Gee, the buck stops with you." And. uh Basically, I was really looking forward to this race in a couple of weeks' time. Five Valleys, it's called. It's stopped now. It's in Wales. And I was really looking forward to doing it. And obviously, uh, yeah, we weren't allowed to do that. And we had to go for a ride with um, Bradley Wiggins and Steve Cummins in the peaks where uh, they were told to just give us a hard time. So, um, (laughs) yeah, that was one that that, that stands out. But uh, I still hold a grudge against Cav for that. See, a lot of the details I never know, and it's quite... um quite surprised these days these stories keep coming out and i keep hearing like what he was actually up to um but the 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 catch point to it was uh i don't know if you ever remember in the rules it said do whatever you want don't wake your housemates up and and that that was the one sole thing that i was like right i don't care if you're out on the you know on the beer all night it was that uh so that's what i got you on but uh yeah i do remember it very well yeah Plant pot in the microwave as well. Oh, Cav opened the microwave to put his porridge in. A plant pot falls out. Oh, he was fuming. Oh, God. So I never knew stuff like that. I mean, honestly, there's so many. Uh, Cav's yeah. such an angry man. Yeah. Did you remember yeah. your cycling shoes were in, were in the freezer? Or did you spend ages looking for them? Because you're not going to look in the freezer, are you? Yeah, no, because Brammy put them in there. I had no idea. So I was looking for them for ages. I was like, where the hell are my shoes? So I rang Matt and I was like, where are they? Like, have you, did you, what did you do with them? And he was like, I don't know, mate. And then hung up. And then a minute later, he rings back laughing, saying, Oh, yeah, they put, I put them in the freezer. It's like, you bastard. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. What do you find the hardest part was, Rod, back in those days? Like, hazard a guess. Well, maybe with us, it wasn't so bad, but maybe later riders. Dealing with parents when, when you got kids that age, I guess that must be uh, one of the big challenges. Yeah, I think um, I always remember thinking, right, I've got a, I've got a big responsibility here. You know, I'm taking a group of young lads 
you know, not just bring them to Manchester, but, you know, it wasn't long afterwards, was it, you know, that we all went to live in Italy for the road racing season, you know, for sort of eight months of the year. And and that was why I used to do that parent evening, you know, the when everybody first started and each year would bring all the parents in and explain exactly what we're trying to do. And I always sort of tried to make that connection with the parents to make sure there's the, the line's there 24-7 if they wanted to call me or whatever. And I mean, thankfully, we never really had too many problems because, again, I think you guys were pretty self-motivated and you knew what you wanted to do. There was the odd occasion, but, um, yeah, you know, it, I wouldn't say it was it was easy and I wouldn't say I was never worried about, you know, having you guys around. So, you know, when you think about when we were in Italy and some of you guys were banging down them descents, I'd be out on the motorbike or in the car with you and I'd be like thinking, well, and I remember bringing Stanard up once say, can you just please slow down? Because I don't fancy scraping you off the bonnet of a car and having to ring your yeah. parents. I just, I don't know why at that moment in life, I was just like, I just don't want that in my life at the minute. Can you just slow <laughs> down, you know? Um, so there's moments like that, which, are, you know, and, and like when you had your crash in, in Australia, wasn't it? You know, it was a pretty big moment for you. Yeah, that was only what, about three or four months after I joined. Yeah, yeah. You know, you weren't very old and... And I knew straight away, you know, I got that phone call from Matt Bramier because I think somebody had left the license at home. We were we were going riding from Cornella to to the velodrome in Sydney. Um, somebody had left the license. I turned around, left you guys, and I got the phone call from Bramier. And it, because you had laid down on the road and you weren't getting up, I knew you were bad. And I always say that to people about yourself: if if G lays down, it's bad. <laughs> the guy would normally get up. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was. That was pretty serious. And then, you know, just doing all what we did with your parents, wasn't it, you know? Yeah, so basically, Tom, uh, Dave and, and Rod organised my mum and dad to fly out. Because I'd obviously, I, basically I crashed and ruptured my spleen. So I had to have it taken out. Was in intensive care for, yeah, a few days, whatever, in the hospital after that for quite a bit longer. And so they flew my parents and my brother out, which was really good of them. But then I think the hotel was full or something. So they ended up moving into your apartment with you, didn't they, right? With me, yeah. I slept on this. <laughs> I slept on the settee. Your brother slept on the floor next to me and your mum and dad had my room. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, it was good. It was good. I just remember your dad. I always remember your dad because he ended up one day coming in with boardies on and a little, you know, as they call it in Australia, singlet and off down the beach. I was like, he's having a great time. <laughs> Yeah, once once I was fine and like you know just recovering, then my brother and my dad were having a whale of a time down there. Oh, they had a holiday. holiday. Yeah, yeah, proper holiday. Do you need to have been a rider, Rod? Do you think? Because we we have this debate in other sports, don't we? It's the whole Jose Mourinho was an interpreter, not a player. And apparently, there's there's a. It might have been who did he fall out? Somebody f- fell out with at Real Madrid. It might have been Sergio Ramos. He used to have this phrase, which was, "You never see him in shorts." which was basically a player's cuss to someone who hadn't been a player because he didn't have the right legs for shorts. So in cycling, how does it work? Because you, you rode when you were younger, didn't you? Was that, was that essential, do you think, to what you've got on to do? Um, I, I think for the role that I played at that time in British cycling, I think having the experience of cycling, the background, you know, I, I'd done all the junior worlds and all the travelling and going abroad, living abroad, without any of the support, um, you know, and very much... You know, you uh, well. There's just very, very little support from British cycling. So a lot of my background and uh, belief in how we did stuff was from my own experiences. I never really talked about my own experiences, but it was because of my own experiences. But I don't, I don't, I think like now at the G sort of part of his career, I think working with a with, with a coach who's not from cycling, I don't think really matters. And I think Tim Kerrison is a good example of that. 
you know, it's all about that conditioning. And I think, you know, he's proved, you know, across swimming and rowing and cycling, you know, there's certain elements of, of conditioning that can be used, you know, uh, across different uh, endurance sports. So, but I do think my, from my point of view, the area which I did most of my coaching was, was critical, I think, being a ex-cyclist, yeah. Yeah, totally. I agree as well. And I think, yeah, as, as, as Rod said, was with Tim and the whole physiological point of view, you can do that for sure just by being very clever understanding the body and knowing and then under, then learning cycling but i think where i don't think you can be like a ds or something if you haven't really raced well no, no it, you, you can't at all really you need to understand you know tactics and things are, are slightly different i think mm. yeah i think so and i think you know when you think gee a lot of the work we did wasn't really about conditioning was it you know it was more about how do you ride uh having you know knowing how to work with your teammates tactics and the you know it's all about sort of just developing their uh, you know these young guys ideas around racing as a team and so forth and if you think about all them coach said racing sessions we used to do at the velodrome uh you know that was all that, it was all my experience so you know I, I was very young at coaching if you like at that time you know so it's just my my experience yeah do you get some coaches or I'm, I'm sure there are different styles of coaching in cycling do you get the numbers coaches who who love a stat and love um love drilling down into stuff on their laptop do you get the sort of almost call them the field coaches who just like to watch a rider and they can get a better sense of of how a rider is visually what are the different sort of idioms that you get i mean it, you know in, in the early days of british cycling um peter Keane's uh, method was if you haven't got the engine you'll never be good enough and i really challenged that when i first started at british cycling i really challenged that 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 idea because i was like yeah i could see there's a lot of young kids who didn't have the engine but technically were very very good and they were the ones at the time who were winning the nationals and winning they were perhaps only 15 or 16 but there's something in it uh, and that's where I changed all the academy. You know, we scrapped all of the minimum standards of uh, they used to have to do a certain times on the track to get on the national team. I scrapped all that because, uh, you know, I, I felt that it, there's, you have to have a big racing element to the programme because that's what we do. That's our game. It's not about training. It's not always about the numbers. And you can develop the power. You can develop the engine. Where the original idea is they thought you can't develop that. You, you, you've got that, that's a given, and you can develop the other side. And I was I saw it differently. Yeah, I think Cavs keep like a prime example of that, isn't he? Like yeah. He, like as a junior and stuff, he never, or even now, like he's not, he doesn't punch out massive numbers, but no. just the way he can race and Swifty as well, you know, Swifty, smaller, yeah. you know, the way they get around the peloton and can tactically how they ride. and Yeah. Yeah. I'd say the Yates brothers are another example. You know, as young lads, they were very small you know, they perhaps couldn't produce the power. So they never made the national teams. You know, Ben Swift, Mark Cavendish, they hardly made the national teams at the young ages where yourself, G and Stannard and the bigger guys or guys with a bit more of an engine made the national teams. You know, these other guys didn't get the chance. And that's what I tried to change that. I'll just open the doors a little bit more, a little wider for other people to be able to develop over the years, you know. What was it about G, the first time you've seen G riding? What was it about him that stood out? It was really interesting, actually, that um, there's a friend of mine, Tim Buckle, who was also a, a coach on on the talent team, uh, similar time to when I was. And she was, was riding the Nationals at Manchester. It's the individual pursuit. And, and he said, you have to watch this guy. Look how... And he used the words, look how slippery he is. 
and and basically <laughs> basically what what it means is you know how how slippery you are through the through the air you know you've got such a good aero position so we we personally went and stood at one of the end of the bankings and watched you come in head on g down that down the back straight it was and you could just it was like wow this 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 guy's got some position and you could see you know something in there the way he was pedaling uh just them little things which is a little bit of my side of coaching really you're looking at them you know how how somebody's positioned on the bike where they're looking uh you know the way in which they're pacing themselves the pedaling style the cadence they've naturally got you can sort of see quality without even looking at any numbers you know my pacing was terrible though Rod. remember some of those <laughs> pursuits some of those pursuits i did holy moly it's all about learning <laughs> <laughs> but I, I definitely lean towards the more the feel like the old school as they probably coin it I, I like the numbers I'd say 30% numbers and that sort of feedback but there's nothing better than like Shane was another one who was really good with the whole sort of just looking at a rider and telling what they need and things like I don't think Shane ever looked at numbers really like he wouldn't have a clue but he can just look look at someone and be like right yeah he needs to do this or you know he needs to rest or he needs to do a bit more like he needs to pedal more he needs to get like his position and this and that and yeah that stuff like that is just gold yeah i mean we we never used power did we in the academy and it was all about you know what have you just done this last week what do you want to do next week and getting you guys to sort of talk about what training you think matters for you and and for you guys to really sort of learn about yourselves more than anything, you know, cyclists, it's mad really when you think about how our sport works, you know, you spend a lot of time on your own training. So, you you know, you have to know what you're doing. And I think that's why I believe even as young lads, you've got to get them into it really, really quickly to start understanding and learning about themselves and and just taking that responsibility, you know, and really making sure, I, I don't know, G, if you, you know, always you think it's, it's your lives, not mine, <laughs> You know, I'm I'm just here, you know, hoping to support you guys to be as good as you can be, but always trying to say, you know, it's your responsibility. If you don't want to do it, walk away. You know, you don't have to be here, (laughs) that's for sure. So, you know. Yeah, that was one of the phrases that, well, no, Rod didn't use that all the time, but it was that. What else was there? Get out there and earn your pennies and uh, (laughs) the Olympic bus isn't going to wait for you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a Swifty story, wasn't it? <laughs> that was a Swifty yes. story in, in Moscow. Was uh, oh, yeah. I, I left Swifty at the hotel in Moscow. Didn't I? Didn't realise it was his 18th birthday, <laughs> and he turned up. He turned up at the velodrome in a right flat, and he, and he said, "Yeah, I'm sorry, it's my birthday today." <laughs> I, felt, oh. I felt I felt a little bit guilty at that moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I should still be on time though. Well, that's it, isn't it? What are the old wives' tales that you two have heard that anyone who's ever ridden a bike will have um, done a club ride at some point with an old boy who will just he'll dispense some wisdom? And there's some great old idioms that you get told, aren't there? The whole thing about, you know, don't ride long before Christmas and there's ones about what you should and shouldn't do in the rain. What, what are the classics that you two have heard? And are there any that have actually got some, in retrospect, got some science to them? Max Chandry always used to go on about, hey, guys, you've got to have a little sweat a little sweat before the day before a race. And uh, we were just kind of like, yeah, yeah, okay. But then looking back, it is actually, you, you do benefit from that. There's obviously science and stuff behind it and, and whatever. But I think guys like him, you know, he was another sort of 100% feel for it. And like he was an ex-pro Italian sort of English guy. And yeah, I think there's a lot of sort of those beliefs with, I don't think they, they knew the science, but now 20 30 years later, they actually 
make sense. Some of them, not all of them. Worst one I ever had was uh, uh, when I well, I used to live in France and race, and the French used to say you, you, you should never take a bath. You know, you, a bath just like damages Whatever. your muscles. And, well, not just before not, a race, not, not ever, but like just before <laughs> a race. <laughs> and then, and then there was one which was um, it was a stage race we were on, and it was a split. Split. We had like a road stage in the morning, time trial in the afternoon. I'd done quite well in the road race, and uh, I was doing quite well on GC. And um, the guy said, "No, don't take a shower." <laughs> it, it, they had this real <laughs> perception that you know water on your muscles just relaxes your muscles, and they just don't keep the tone or something. Because like, yeah, right, whatever. <laughs> Where's the <my> towel? <laughs> <laughs> oh, even when I was in Barlow World, actually, like Italian team, they'd always say just random foods as well, like mushrooms can't eat mushrooms they give you like bad stomach um like random stuff and then they'd be in like a full whole ball of like mozzarella cheese and like <laughs> that like you know you know the fat you get on um ham in oh. italy they have basically just shaved fat you know that one rod it's like i yeah, don't know the yeah. name of it now but it's just pure fat and they just like sit there and eat that and then you're not allowed to have a mushroom like, oh guys like <laughs> What, G, G, what's the single best piece of advice you've ever been given? It doesn't have to be from Rod. Uh, obviously, it would help if it, if it was. But if there was an absolute blinder you got from someone else, what would it be? <laughs> to do with coaching, I think... Um, I think it's just holding back a bit, really. Because I've got the tendency to just go over the edge, like just do a bit too much. Like If you're feeling good, you're like, oh, yeah, I'll do one more effort or I'll do an extra hour. And I think every now and again it's okay, or, or time and a place, like going out on the lash, basically. But I think, yeah, if you end up doing it a bit too much, you can just, yeah, go over the edge. And like, there's been a few times where I've forcibly had to sort of like cut my ride short and not do that extra bit. And then suddenly in the race, like the next week, I've just felt like a million dollars. So um, for me, the hardest bit is sort of like holding back and you just just being honest with your coach. That's by far the, the most important thing especially if you know because like we were lucky back in the day with Rod when he yeah lived just around the corner but a lot of coaching these days do it you know virtually you know they download your Garmin or whatever to whatever training device you use and um, yeah they, they analyse it from there but yeah I think being honest and for me it's just yeah knowing your, your body really learning from your mistakes and yeah for me it's holding back I think I think that holding back thing to you is a big one for you, isn't it? Because I think that's where we mentioned it earlier about the best ones you have to hold back. And I remember with yourself, you know, you'd have a ten day training camp, and after three or four days, G was on his knees. This was early on, you know, couldn't would often get sick or couldn't quite complete the whole ten day sessions, or and it was all about just learning to hold back. You know, feel like you could have done a hell of a lot more. Um, and I think it's still today. And when people ask me about G, I always say. If you want G to do four hours, tell him to do three. Because he'll end up doing four. So, you know, it's just a little thing I always say to people. That's the sort of mentality G has is always pushing and squeezing to get more, which I think is why you've been super successful. But it can be the the biggest sort of Achilles heel at, at the same time. You must get a real bond, Rod, with particularly those the, the young lads who you had at the academy in the early days. Um because you are, you're not a surrogate parent, but you're almost like a benevolent uncle, aren't you? And you care about these guys. And um, in the tour that, that G won in 2018, probably one of the, the most emotional moments for a lot of people watching was that stage where G wins in La Rosière. 
and you wait for Mark Cavendish, who is desperately trying to get to the finish line. And obviously he's not on your team at that point. And the race is packing up in the way that the tour does. Barriers are being taken down and you, you just stood there and waited for Cav. I, at the time, I just didn't think really about anything other than, you know, you try and support people. And, you know, obviously, um, you know, I, I was in the, uh, you know, I always used to do the recon job. So I was ahead of the race and, you know, knowing what was happening in the race. And I could, obviously, I knew G was in the front group, but at the same time, I could hear Mark was falling further and further behind. And just knowing his character and what he was going to, I knew he was going to finish. And, and I thought, um, you know, I went up to try and see G. I can't remember if I saw you G or not after the finish, but I went up to see the G and, you know, saw G sort of uh, podium-wise and then um, thought I'd better wait for Mark as well because I, I just knew he'd feel very alone. And and they're the, they're the moments when people need a bit of support, isn't it, you know? Um, so, yeah, it was it was quite a quite a bit of a roller coaster to be honest. That, 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 well, that whole race was, you know, with G doing so well and just how it all went, yeah. Yeah, I remember the next day actually. Um, I didn't hear it at the time because I, I didn't. Obviously, I cut myself off from the outside world. I didn't want to get affected. I was in just a good place mentally and just wanted to stay in my own bubble. But I remember after the race, somebody sent me a, a, an audio clip of Rod when um, I won the next day at Alpe d'Huez. Do you remember Rod? And uh, it was just so like funny is the wrong word, but nice. It was just like yeah, it was just weird like hearing that emotion from Rod as well. Like foi. I can't remember what you said, but something like, "Wow, this is serious now." Like, yeah, yeah, this is this is we've got this there. is on or something. Like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was well, it was a big moment, wasn't it? You know, and I just knew somebody like yourself, you know, how much how much time you put into it, and you know, just all them years that you tried, and I think you've had a, you've you've had some massive knocks in your career, yet yet you still pulled through, and I think you know they're quite special moments, I think, for everybody, aren't they? You know. And and I still, you know, even I remember sitting down with Dave B. We were in the hotel in Poe. I think we only had four days or something. I can't remember now. It was, it was obviously the start just after the second rest day. And Dave and I were like just trying to hold back from being like really emotional, saying, is this actually going to happen? You know, because I think, uh, yeah, okay, Brad and Fumi, but, you you know, you were one of, the, one of the guys who, you know, when we think about myself and Dave, that real sort of... Um, point in British cycling where there was a big turning point you know and you came in as a young lad and were really part of that whole journey wasn't it really yeah yeah I think everyone was a bit like that like nobody spoke about it even when Sam my wife came out like to the rest day all she did was talk about the dog like for like hours upon hours like anything but the yellow jersey that's just hanging off the back of the chair in the corner of the room you know <laughs> so <laughs> God, you just yeah. like well we just know what happens isn't it you know it, it can be over in a second and you just, you know, I don't think anybody wanted to put a curse on it, to be honest. <laughs> now, usually, G, this is the point where we let our guests go. And then we do a section where you give listeners some tips. But bearing in mind, we've got a coach here. Should we let Rod do this one? Yeah, that sounds good to me. Really? Okay, so Rod, <laughs> in, in your in your position as official coach to GTCC, what are your, your three best tips for amateur riders anywhere something that will improve. Not all of them have to be applicable to everyone, but three little nuggets that you've learned that might be useful for our fellow GTCC members. I think, uh, you know, for like a general club rider, I think is, is to actually remember what sort of level you're racing at. And, you know, sometimes people read like what the pros do 
and they think they've got to train like a pro and it's it's absolutely the worst thing you can ever do and I think you've got to try and win the races that you're just about to go into not try and win a pro race so I think training can be very diff, diff, different you know I think uh, another tip would be you know certainly during the winter months I think people get desperate uh, and think they've got to get out on the road all the time and you know obviously now with with all the different sort of equipment you can use from indoor trainers and the interaction you can have with other people there's no reason to go out there when it's sort of minus two and a half degrees like yesterday morning and uh, you know just ice everywhere uh, you, you, you know you're going to lose weeks rather than just losing a few hours you know um, so that's always I believe is a big big moment uh, and then I think as well um, you know if you think about equipment you know invest in some good clothing uh, it makes a massive difference and the thing is now there's such good quality clothing out there there's no reason why you wouldn't invest in some good clothing and just make sure that you know you've got everything with you when you do go out I, 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 we mentioned earlier about always make sure you go out with a cape and gloves and I, I, I always say it to people you know just make sure you're well covered and you've got the options that's the main thing I think when you're cycling because there's nothing worse than you know, cycling can be a bit brutal when it's cold and wet and windy and you've not got the right kit on, yet you're 40 miles from home and you've you've got blockhead wind all the way. You, you know, you, you learn to survive, don't you? And that's what is a big part of this game. That's what Shane always used to say, wasn't it? There's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing. Yeah, you're, wa- <laughs> you're waterproof. That was the other one. He says, stop complaining, yeah. you're waterproof. Just put some more clothes on. <laughs> yeah. Skin's waterproof. Yeah. Get out there. Brilliant. Well, cheers, Rod. Thanks for coming. No worries. Thank you. You're welcome. Tom, what's new on Zwift this week? New on Zwift this week, G, since we last spoke, was a little race outing. The last uh, race in the Northwest Cyclocross series, much delayed due to COVID. But uh, I took part. I enjoyed it. Had a good little race round. It was very dry. It wasn't particularly crossy. It was more like a sort of a summer crit. Didn't need any lumps on your tyres at all. But I like to think my winter training on Zwift had just pushed me a couple of places up the rankings. Very good. So we're having great fun podding and you're getting fitter at the same time. Well, if you fancy giving Zwift a try, just go to Zwift.com to start your free trial. Also, that way you can come and join our club ride every Wednesday at 6pm. Doesn't matter how fast, how slow, how new to it you are. Everyone is welcome. It's that time again, Tom. Let's finish the pod with any other business. Yeah, okay. So let's start with some appointments, shall we? You've only got a couple more weeks left to get your applications in as well. We've had this one from Sam, who calls himself Velo Man, who would like to be the GTCC mechanic. Now, we've got Ross Taylor already as our head mechanic, but Sam wants to work out of Belgium. So I think that works, doesn't it? He says, like any good cycling team, the GTCC's service course must be located in Belgium. And since I'm a bicycle mechanic and I live in Belgium, I'm your man. Yeah, great. Sounds good to me. Could you explain to us, Chief, for those who don't know, what a service course is? Yeah, it's basically your hub, your centre. So, yeah, our service course is in Belgium. It's been there since the very start of the team in 2010 when it got set up. And basically, yeah, it has. that's where all the trucks, all the cars will end up um that's their home so to speak but to be honest once they leave in feb they kind of get passed around the whole of europe and they hardly ever well some of them hardly ever go back so 
but yeah, you know, all the bikes are there, all the wheels. Um, yeah, so everything, spares, you know, all the Shimano stuff, tires. It's a huge sort of warehouse, basically. And obviously security is maximal because for sure there's a hell of a lot of, of money in that in that um, shed. So if you are thinking about trying to burgle the Ineos Grenadiers service course, do not do so. The security is immense. Yeah, go to Quick Step or someone else. Yeah, <laughs> go to Quick Step, and they're only just down the road. Uh, <laughs> next up, and a really popular position, this one, we've got another application to be a social secretary. I like this G. People are beginning to understand just what sort of club this is. This time, it's from Terry Mockler who wants to represent Ireland. Terry says he's a personal trainer, a wellness coach, a nutrition coach, a piano player, and has a diploma in drinking. So he thinks he'd make a fine appointment. I don't see much there to disagree with. Multi-talented as well. What's a wellness coach, though? Like, is he into spas and stuff? I don't know. Terry, maybe get in contact. Give us a little, little bit more information on what this involves. Is it just rubdowns or is it a tour of Ireland's best spas? I think either way, we might be interested. Yeah, well, I like that. He's got all bases covered, hasn't he? And, um, yeah, most of the Irish like a good crack, don't they? Unless you beat them in the rugby, then they're a bit sour, you know, but... Yeah. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and finally, the magnificently named De Villiers Erasmus, which is one of those names you could flip round and it would still work, has got in touch about international relations. He's a South African living in London and says he would be the perfect candidate to represent South Africa as he's raced both mountain bikes and on the road and can give our members plenty of local knowledge if they were ever to travel there. I like it. I like that a lot, yeah. I was in a South African team or the sponsor was South African, when I first turned professional and uh, yeah, spent a lot of time with them and yeah, enjoyed my time there. So welcome. A few tough cookies in that team, weren't they? I'm thinking particularly what? Robbie Hunter here. Yeah. I remember the first time I met him, he had, you know, his reputation sort of, um, well, basically I'd heard what he was like before I'd met him and I was quaking in my boots and I turned up dead late because my flight was late or something and I rocked up with the manager, knocked on the door and he opened it and he had a face like thunder. It must have been 11 o'clock. I think we woke him up and I was like, oh, shit, this is a great start. But um, nicest guy, though, once once he got to know you and, well, if he liked you, he was great. If he didn't like you, it was uh, yeah, a rough road for you. But um, luckily he liked me and, um, oh, top bloke, yeah. What was the secret with Robbie Hunter? Was it to put in some sort of heroic effort the first time you went out of training together to do some totally ridiculous pull on the front? and destroy yourself for Robbie Hunter? <laughs> yeah, I think being half decent on the bike helps. But I think just um, being honest, that's his main thing with him. Like, if you flicked him or if you tried to sort of like, yeah, bypass him somehow, he and he found out, <laughs> he, oh boy, <laughs> you, you just don't want to be on the wrong side of him. I remember the first time, because from when I met him at uh, 11 o'clock at night in some random hotel room, we then flew to Australia and uh, some bus cut us up. And... He had a taser, actually. He always trained with a taser in his pocket. And what? He was just going... <laughs> in South Africa, obviously, um, yeah, he did all the Fair time. Point. And I think he just... It was force of habit there. He obviously didn't need it in Australia. But, um, <laughs> yeah, and it was just... Uh, what? I hadn't seen anything like it. But I certainly felt safe with him anyway. <laughs> well, that's definitely a good thing. Um, and then one final shout-out to finish. We've had a note from Martin who says... I heard the recent appeal for someone to get a club jersey into outer space. Sounds good, doesn't it, G? Uh, he continues, I can't oblige there. Uh, I can't oblige there, 
but I can definitely get one into inner space. What does he mean? There's a good chance G went to... Wait, might, might have to help me with the pronunciation here, G. G went to Danu Ogov. Danarogov. What is it again? Danarogov. Danarogov. Okay. There's a good chance G went to Danarogov in his school days, so I can easily get a GTCC jersey into somewhere a little more untrodden and or a little more exotic. G, you're going to need to help me out here. What is Danarogov? Do we want the GTC jersey going there? <laughs> um... So Danarogov is, is the caves, basically. They're up in like Brecon Way. I'm sure we went there in ah. school. We did like this week trip away. We were at some outdoor centre and, you know, we went caving and, um, you know. Oh, the Story Arms one. That's the one, yeah, yeah. So we went to Danarogov. I'm pretty sure that's when I went. And um, I think I'd be more scared going now, though. Like, I remember there was part <laughs> of it. It was like called the letterbox. Obviously, it was just a narrow slit in like the rock that you had to like squeeze yourself through. Oh, I'd struggle to do that now, to be honest. But um, no, they were, that was good fun, actually. And um, so, yeah, I can't imagine another cycling jerseys being in the depths of those caves, have they, really? So feels more like a time capsule, that idea. So that if we stick it in outer space, aliens might get it quite quickly. If we bury it in Danarogov, <laughs> then when they come visiting, they'll eventually find it. Especially if he puts it somewhere like, you know, if he finds some new, like, another letterbox. And then he goes in there and he sticks it in, like, I don't know, a little shiny pot. And then somebody will discover it thinking it's some this treasure. And then it's a GTCC jersey and they'll be really deflated. But Or they could be really happy. <laughs> it could be really happy. If it's the right size. <laughs> and if you fancy listening to another pod on your rides this week, Tom, what can I listen to try out? Yeah, how about this one, G? How about Death of a Sports Star? It's presented by the legendary Elroy Spoonface Powell. You can check out episodes about Kobe Bryant, about Payne Stewart, Marco Pantani, Flojo, John Alomu and more. There's a new episode out every Monday. Just search for Death of a Sports Star. See you next time. That was the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club. Thanks to De Villiers Erasmus, Sam, a.k.a. Fellow Man and Terry Mockler to our head of social media, Fionn Clark, our head of music, Emma Hickman, our treasurer, Diane Barker and our honorary president, And of course, most of all, to you for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.